ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning and welcome to AM. It's Wednesday the 3rd of January. I'm Kim Landers coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. In a remarkable escape, 379 passengers and crew have survived after a Japan Airlines jet burst into flames following a collision with a smaller Coast Guard plane on the runway at Tokyo. An orange fireball erupted from the Airbus A350, the jet sliding along the runway of one of the world's busiest airports, people fleeing the inferno using the the inflatable slides. The smaller Dash 8 plane was preparing to take off to deliver aid to an area affected by this week's major earthquake. Five people on board died. Kathleen Ferguson reports. As the smoke quickly filled the cabin and flames erupted outside the plane's windows, passengers panicked. After they were all evacuated, the carbon fibre plane went up in flames. The Japan Airlines jet colliding with a Coast Guard aircraft on a runway at Tokyo's Haneda Airport. Some of the people who survived were shocked they made it out. I can only say it was a miracle. We could have died if we were late evacuating, this man said. The Coast Guard aircraft was on its way to Niigata to deliver relief to residents affected by Monday's earthquake. Fumio Kishida is the Japanese Prime Minister. These people who died carried out their jobs with a strong sense of duty and responsibility for the disaster-stricken areas and victims. This is a very unfortunate incident and I would like to offer my sincere condolences while expressing my respect and gratitude for their sense of duty. It's the first time one of the Airbus A350s has been severely damaged in an accident. The model is one of the industry's newest large passenger planes and they have been in commercial service since 2015. Japan's Transport Ministry Civil Aviation Bureau said the collision occurred when the larger plane landed on one of Haneda's four runways where the Coast Guard aircraft was getting ready to take off. Tim Atkinson is a pilot and aviation consultant. Uh, Mike. Perception from the limited information available so far is that the fire began at the moment of the collision between the two aircraft um, and, you know, caused by the, the forces involved, probably the release of fuel involved at the time. He's praised Japanese authorities for getting the passengers off so quickly. In an evacuation, ideally, you want all of the exits open. You want all of the slides to deploy normally. You want everyone to get down the slides rapidly. Uh, it appears to me that door was not used in the evacuation. So that's e- that's even more remarkable. Uh, it is something people train for, but, but you know, it, it makes the probability of getting everyone out less likely. And certainly the images uh, I've seen of the moments immediately after the collision Uh, indicate that the fire as it started was not insignificant. Authorities are investigating the collision. Airbus is sending a team of specialists to assist. Kathleen Ferguson. In a significant development in Israel's war against Hamas, a senior leader of the terrorist group has been killed in an alleged Israeli drone strike in the Lebanese capital of Beirut. Salah al-Aruri was the deputy head of Hamas's political bureau, but also heavily involved in the group's military operations. Middle East correspondent Alison Horne is in Jerusalem and we spoke earlier. Yeah, the 57-year-old was the deputy chairman of Hamas's political bureau, effectively the second in command of Hamas. 
He was very heavily involved in militant operations, military planning, the operations including of October 7. He was based in Lebanon because effectively he has been a conduit between Hamas and Hezbollah, the militant group in Lebanon. What we know about this attack is that there was a meeting in a Hamas building uh, in the south of Beirut. Hamas is alleging that building was targeted in an Israeli drone strike. Now, Israel's military is yet to officially comment, but um, Israeli politicians have posted on social media attributing the assassination to Israel and congratulating security forces. Lebanese state media is reporting several other people have also been killed in the blast. And this area in southern Beirut is a Hezbollah stronghold. So there are big fears that this killing could draw that Lebanese militia group into a more serious escalation with Israel. And Kim, it's important to point out that al-Aruri is the most senior leader of Hamas to have been killed now since the October 7 attack. Well, Alison, as you mentioned, Israel's been making it clear that it's prepared to go after the leaders of Hamas no matter where they are. Does this killing once again raise concerns about the conflict spreading beyond Gaza's borders? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's significant for a number of reasons. One, it's the first targeting of a Hamas official outside of a Palestinian territory since October 7. Uh, Secondly, it occurred in Hezbollah's area of operation in the capital, Beirut, which is a really long way from the Israel-Lebanon border, which which is where we have really seen some cross-border fire between the two groups um, concentrated since October 7. I think it's possibly also intended as a message to Hamas and Hezbollah that Israel can reach anyone anywhere, as they have said. Uh, Israeli commentators are already saying that this is a victory for the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, but there is a lot of anxiety now across Israel and Lebanon about what this will mean for the conflict, because bombing Beirut or its suburbs had long been declared a red line by Hezbollah that would necessitate significant retaliation. So uh, Israeli sources are reporting that Israel is preparing for a significant retaliation by Hezbollah uh, and that there could be long-range missiles launched on targets even down as far as Tel Aviv in Israel. Correspondent Alison Horn. Investigators in South Korea say a man who almost killed the country's opposition leader in a stabbing attack won't reveal why he did it. The daytime attack was caught on camera and has shocked the nation, also raising questions about the security for politicians. Correspondent Bill Bertels reports. 59-year-old Lee J. Myung had just spoken at a construction site in southern Busan when a man wearing a paper hat approached him for an autograph. Suddenly, the man stabbed Mr. Lee with an 18-centimetre knife in the neck. Despite initial fears for his life, doctors airlifted Lee Jae-myung to a hospital in Seoul for surgery, saying the attack may have partially lacerated his jugular vein. The President Yoon Suk-yeol, who beat Mr Lee at the last election and remains a firm opponent of him, condemned the attack. 
A police official, Son Ji Han, stressed just how serious authorities are in their response. The Busan police force will set up a task force with a total of 68 people to conduct a thorough investigation. But he says the 67-year-old man in custody for the attack isn't telling police what motivated him to stab the opposition leader. Associate Professor Ki Sung Kwak from Sydney University says political violence in South Korea is relatively rare. I think, first of all, the public, of course, is shocked. But he points out it's not the first time a South Korean political figure has been attacked in this way. One in 2006, when then ruling party leader uh, Park Geun-hye, she was stabbed. And the most recent one, that was 2022, when the ruling party politician, she was hit by a hammer. So those two were the main ones. And actually, there was one more uh, that was uh, 2015, when the American ambassador to South Korea, he, he was uh, stabbed. Dr Kwak says upcoming parliamentary elections in South Korea might be affected by the stabbing of Lee Jae-myung, who is running for a seat. Mr Lee is an outspoken critic of the current president. He's facing multiple investigations, which he claims are politically motivated, and he's seen as the leading opposition figure to challenge for the presidency again in three years' time. Lee Sung-kwak of Sydney University says political figures and the South Korean media have been generally cautious in the way they've spoken about the attackers' rumoured motivations due to the heated political environment. But he says one thing looks more certain, the need to improve security for politicians in South Korea. The, the level of protection, it's pretty limited. So I'm pretty sure this time they will... Uh, consider about the upgrade, the uh, protection uh, of the political leaders. Associate Professor Ki Swang Kwak from Sydney University speaking to Bill Bertels. More help is on the way to flood and storm-ravaged communities in southeast Queensland. 50 Defence Force personnel will be joining the more than 200 emergency crews already on the ground on the Gold Coast and the Scenic Rim as the threat of heavy rain moves north to Brisbane and the Sunshine Coast. However, as Stephanie Smale reports, there's frustration from some about the response from authorities so far. After a week without power and six children to take care of, a flood warning was the last thing Brettley Shepherd wanted to hear. We're all pretty over it because we're still recovering from the tornado. We literally got power back New Year's Eve night and then the rain started. So it's one hit after another and our sewage tanks are still not working. Um, we don't know if we're going to lose power again. His home at Mundulan in Logan, south of Brisbane, is near the swollen Albert River and was one of thousands damaged in the Christmas night tornado. Our gutters got ripped off, um, exposing the roof, so there's now no seals on the roof, so a good strong wind again will lift the roof. Have you had contact from authorities to, that you will get help with that? No, we haven't had contact from anyone. The only feedback that we keep getting is that everyone is asking for help and it will take as long as it needs. He says locals have done most of the heavy lifting with the tornado clean-up so far and neighbours are helping those in need. Rachel Rouse says it's the same at her place at Jimboomba, about 10 kilometres north. We haven't had any help. I haven't seen anyone come up the street. No, we haven't had any help at all, no. What help do you need now? When you haven't been working and you're paying all this money and the government grants are 
not $180, that doesn't cover a lot. We're spending about $90 to $100 a day in fuel for generators just to keep things going. Yeah, it's adding up very quickly. The ongoing heavy rain has hampered efforts to reconnect power and the state government says the system will need to be completely rebuilt in some places. That's meant Rachel Rowles and the five others in her home haven't had power since Christmas night and they're not expecting it to be back on until the end of the week at best. My elderly dad needs, because he's type 1 diabetic, keeping all his insulin cold, had to find a second-hand generator. One generator wasn't keeping up with all the fridges and the tank to get water. Extra help has started arriving with SES crews from interstate and the Army deployed, as well as Queensland-based crews. But Rachel Rouse says the flood threat across the region is making life even harder. It's just been a nightmare and can't go to work because, you know, other places have got no power because I'm a, a cleaner, so haven't been to work all week and I'm self-employed so loss of income and now that we're flooded a lot of places I can't get to to go to work either. After nearly half a metre of rain in 24 hours at Tambourine, some properties that had been badly damaged in the tornado are now dealing with flooding too. Tony Bockhart's been living there for more than a decade. All that water that's being caught on the catchment and the tablelands behind us here, that's all going to end up going through our place again. So we don't know. We just don't know what to expect. Tambourine resident Tony Bockhart ending Stephanie Smale's report. Australian courts are being urged to beef up their cyber security after hackers accessed recordings of highly confidential evidence given in Victorian cases late last year. Police are investigating, but it's not yet clear if the hackers are demanding a ransom or if they'll release the recordings on the dark web. Samantha Donovan reports. Victims of crime advocate Michael O'Connell is alarmed hackers have apparently stolen recordings of people giving evidence in Victorian courts. There may be, for instance, young children who have been giving evidence in relation to sexual offences or women or, or men who have given evidence that's very intimate, that's very detailed. And now there's a possibility that that information will be put up onto the dark web. Court Services Victoria says a few days before Christmas it discovered that on December the 8th there'd been unauthorised access to video and audio recordings stored on its technology network. The recordings were from November and December hearings of the Supreme, County, Magistrates and Coroner's Courts and possibly one Children's Court hearing. Dr Christopher Wilson is a law lecturer at the University of Technology Sydney and has a particular interest in cybercrime, security and the law. He isn't surprised an Australian court system is the victim of a cyber attack. He says similar incidents have happened overseas, particularly in the US, where courts in the states of Georgia, Texas, Alaska and Kansas have all been hit. All throughout 2020 as well, the US federal court systems were hacked via vulnerabilities in software. That particular series of attacks was attributed by the US to Russia. Dr Wilson suspects a foreign entity is to blame for the cyber attack on the Victorian court system. It could be that the target is not the individuals involved, but rather the system as a whole, in which case the threat to just post these recordings is made to the state. The alternative is if they have the time and resources, which since they got into a system like this, they may have, uh, if they're able to identify the individuals, they might do targeted ransom threats. 
if we're dealing with criminal syndicate, it might be threatening to turn witnesses over. Former South Australian Commissioner for Victims' Rights Michael O'Connell wants people caught up in the hack to be treated with sensitivity. Governments should ensure that victims are informed throughout the process of any ongoing investigation. And of course, because of the psychological harm, it's also important that there are support services available to help victims deal with that emotional and psychological harm that could be ongoing for several months, if not longer. But I think what it does is alerts the courts that they ought to be regularly conducting audits to ensure that the data that they keep is secure and be forever vigilant. Former South Australian Commissioner for Victims' Rights, Michael O'Connell. Samantha Donovan reporting. As more car makers prepare to launch electric vehicles in Australia, sales of EVs have been growing quickly, with about 80,000 new vehicles registered in the past 12 months. And more EVs on the road means more mechanics are having to learn new skills, as Gavin Coote reports. After more than 40 years as a motor mechanic, Jerry Marson can see the industry is changing. A lot of talk was going on. Uh, very low volumes of electric cars were, were around. But um, I could see that eventually that was going to have to change. And uh, as it is, it, it has. He now deals solely with hybrid and electric cars at his workshop in Western Sydney and says he and many others in the industry have had to learn new skills. A lot of the older technicians, uh, like myself, it's not just buying equipment, it's also trying to gain that knowledge or a lot of dedicated time to training. You need to really train a lot to gain uh, a lot of knowledge and diagnostic skills to cope with those cars when they do have a problem. While hybrid vehicles have been on Australian roads for well over a decade, The sudden rapid uptake of fully electric vehicles has highlighted the challenges facing the servicing industry. The industry is sort of smart enough and adaptable enough that they'll just take it on the chin and just move along with it. Gavin Cribb is the education manager at the Kangan Institute Victoria, which has about 3,000 automotive apprentices who are learning to work on both internal combustion engine and electric vehicles. We're finding that it's, a, it's an evolution, really not a revolution. So it, it, it's been a long time coming. We still need to have the base understanding of you know, your physics, suspension, internal components and so on, plus everything else that's getting sort of plugged on top of these, um, the, these existing vehicles. So a, um, a contemporary you know, internal combustion vehicle is probably going to have anywhere between you know, 10 and 30 onboard computers. And that's, you know, that's non-EV, that's, that's your current car. So we're already in a space where we're looking at um, you know, zeros and ones within communication systems of vehicles. And it's not just light vehicle mechanics who are gearing up for the transition. The Institute is running a TAFE course on how to inspect and maintain electric buses. Because in Victoria, by 2025, there's a zero emission bus strategy, which is only really 12 months away. So we're working with the bus industry to skill up the heavy vehicle technicians because the bus EV components are different to the passenger cars. And for a sector already experiencing a skill shortage, there's also a growing focus on retaining existing mechanics and getting them upskilled. Ian Price is with the Motor Traders Association of New South Wales, which oversees a number of EV training courses. There certainly is a pathway for the technicians, regardless of age, to be able to upskill um, and become competent um, working on these um, battery electric vehicles. 
So his message for the owners of EVs is that you will be able to find a mechanic if you need one. There is a scare factor out there, out there at the moment, but the point is, is the cars are safe. They can be worked on safely. People are geared up and ready to go. Ian Price from the Motor Traders Association of New South Wales, ending that report from Gavin Coote. And that is AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Kim Landers.